Well, for those of you who uh, don't know me, hopefully to be clear from my young and, you might say, well-toned exterior, that I never experienced the days of the British Empire. I did, however, grow up in uh, Africa in the post-colonial years, shortly after the winds of change were sweeping through the continent. And I certainly have some vivid memories, even 10, 15 years after independence, of a lot of the rhetoric and ideologies that took hold in many of the African countries following independence. I was living in Tanzania, and in many of the countries surrounding Tanzania where I lived, there was great instability as one despot after another tried to cling on to power, usually by trying to divide the populations and encouraging tribalism. But other leaders sought a completely different strategy. In fact, what they were more interested in doing was to try and unite the people, again because they wanted to cling on to power, but to try and unite the people, usually behind a single ideology or behind a single personality. One of the philosophies that came to the fore was Pan-Africanism, which is sort of a hybrid between socialism and African nationalism. And one of the key architects of this was Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, the first leader of an independent African state. And what Nkrumah sought to do was to create a monolithic state where no disunity whatsoever could be tolerated. And he attempted to bring about control of his people by the sheer force of his personality and by the philosophies that he used to give out. In the centre of Accra, the capital of Ghana, he built a larger-than-life statue of himself, and underneath it he wrote what was, became a very controversial, some said even heretical, inscription, which read, Seek ye first the political kingdom, and then all these things will be added unto you. Like so many other statues of despots, after a bloodless coup in 1966, when Krumah was overthrown, the statue was pulled down. But we're faced this morning in the passage with not a too a dissimilar story. As we look at an egotistical king who was worried about losing power, but decided that he wished to unite his population by forcing them to take part in a communal act of worship of a golden image that he created. If you do have your Bible, and if you've not got one, do put your hand up, and I'm sure one will find its way into your hands. Uh, you might like to keep it open at page 886 as we look at Daniel 3 this morning together. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you'll have learnt how King Nebuchadnezzar took some exiles from the Jews into exile into Babylon from the southern kingdom of Judah. And amongst these people were the three characters we're going to be looking at this morning, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In chapter 1, you'll have learned a couple of weeks ago when Tim was preaching how King Nebuchadnezzar retrained these people for his own civil service, asked them to conform, and eventually decided to draw the line at eating the king's food. These were men of principle. In chapter 2 last week, these three figures didn't appear in the story, but you'll have learned how Daniel interpreted the king's dream, a dream that was disturbing the king. And Daniel showed the king that God is the ultimate ruler. And his future kingdom is the ultimate kingdom. That he is sovereign overall. Well, this week we're going to see how God's sovereignty becomes challenged by the very king who'd been warned in the previous chapter about the ultimate fragility of human powers. Actually, what's most remarkable about this story is not necessarily the challenge, but it's the response of the three men. Three men who love their gods more than anything else. 
And the challenge to us this morning is to see if we are willing, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, to stand up and be counted and feel excused upon when the heat is turned up. Well, let's look at this chapter in greater depth, and I'll try to split it into three sections to give it more clarity. We'll begin, first of all, by looking at the challenge to God's sovereignty, faced by the three men. We'll then look at the defence of God's sovereignty. And finally, we will see how God's sovereignty is proved. Let's look at the challenge to God's sovereignty. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold which was 90 feet high. For the metric people amongst us, that's 27 meters. And it was 9 feet wide. That's 2.7 meters. And he set it up with a plain of Jura, as you can see there, in the province of Babylon. Now, it's actually not quite clear what this image was, but it certainly had bizarre proportions to it. In fact, actually, rather than being a statue, it was probably more of an obelisk-shaped figure. But what is clear is that it was large, it was dazzling, and it dwarfed any of the people standing beside it as it rose high over the palm trees of the plain of Jura. In school, we're always taught to try and help students with different learning styles. So for those of you who are more visual learners, I've tried to create a proportional diagram there on the right. And you'll see a person about two meters tall there. That's what they would have looked like next to this amazing image that stood up on the plain of Jura. Bright, imposing certainly very bizarre. But actually, it's not what the image looked like that is important, but it's rather what it represented. You know, undoubtedly, there was an element of Nebuchadnezzar's egotistical personality wrapped up in the building of this image. In chapter 2 last week, and in verse 38, we were told that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in which he saw a statue, and Daniel told him, told Nebuchadnezzar, that the head of gold of that statue represented Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps he had a selective memory, remembered that part of the dream, and believed the hype about himself, and wanted to commemorate himself in this golden statue. But actually it's more likely that Nebuchadnezzar remembered another part of the interpretation of the dream. And that was that the statue one day would be destroyed. The statue where he was the head of gold. And most commentators agree that Nebuchadnezzar may have taken this as a warning that there was a lack of structure in the Babylonian society and there's a lack of cohesion. And it's clear from verse 4 here that there were people in the Babylonian Empire who came from a range of countries, a range of nations. There were Jews there as well, so I'm sure there are a range of religions too. And what better way then to bring unity, to bring cohesion, to get rid of all the divisions and to try to get everybody to share a common religion and a common culture based on that religion. And so we read in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar set out to bring every single area of society under the banner of the common homage to the image of gold. In ascending order, we read in verse 2, he brought the most important people right down to the less important and he summoned them. He then summoned the satraps, these were governors of the major empire divisions. He brought the prefects, they were the civil administrators. The governors, who were the equivalent of our local councillors. The advisors, sort of civil servants that we'd have today. Treasurers, judges, magistrates. In fact, all the provisional officials, social workers of today, the teachers, the bin men, everybody was brought before the image. And so they did, we read in verse 3. The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, 
and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Every person, no matter what status they held in society, no matter where they came from, assembled before the image. And it certainly appears a bit of a carnival atmosphere on the day. Perhaps an alternative family day out with the kids enjoying olive-flavoured candy floss and palm date ice cream. Lots of music was there. Except it came with a bit of a catch. I guess for most of you with families, most of the carnival days you attend don't usually end with a death of threat hanging over you. And that's actually what happened to the people, as we find out in verse 4. Reading verse 4, we find out that the herald loudly proclaims, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Well, the instruction here is quite clear from Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? Bow down and worship the image I've created and become one with all the people of Babylon or die. And if you excuse the terrible expression, as one American preacher put it, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, toast me or I'm going to toast you. And that's exactly what happened in verse 7. We read, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the other lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, peoples of every nation, the men of every language, fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Well, there's the challenge, isn't it, that we're looking at in this part of the passage. The challenge to God's sovereignty. Governments enforced submission to false gods. And there are many parallels we can draw with the modern world. In some parts of the world, believers are under threat of government's edicts to submit to a false god. Last week in our own church, we had a speaker who came from the Barnabas Trust, who I know some of you support. And they work alongside persecuted Christians in many different hostile places, particularly in some of the Islamic states, where government and God are closely interlinked. I'm no expert in Islam, and I know many of you here are quite closely associated with, with organizations that work in Islamic parts of the world, so you'll have a better idea than I do. But he told us of how in Nigeria, in the north of Nigeria, government officials have now insisted with some of the teachings of the Quran that non-Muslims, including Christians living in that place, pay a special poll tax to live in those Islamic areas. And in doing so, they must acknowledge the supremacy of Islam. If any are refused and they don't pay the poll tax, they're told they must leave, or, and I quote, war will be waged against them. The choice is clear for these people. Submit and obey, otherwise leave these areas, or you'll face dire consequences. And this is probably the point where most of you begin to switch off and say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. I do commiserate with these Christians suffering in, in land, I'm happy to pray for them. And actually, when the death threats do come to this country, I will be willing to stand up and to be counted. But I don't need to worry about this at this stage. Well, I would challenge that and say, actually, we do need to be aware 
and we probably need to be even more aware of some of the subtle threats in our own society that so easily challenge our faith. And undoubtedly, the pluralistic culture we currently find ourselves in is one of the biggest challenges to the sovereignty of God. You know, pluralism tells us that all beliefs are acceptable. All ways to God are fine. Pluralism says, your God is great, but so is mine. And actually, one thing that's very interesting to note from chapter 3, at no point does King Nebuchadnezzar say that anybody has to give up their own religion. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were not told that they had to stop worshipping their God. That was fine, they could carry on doing that, just so long as they also bowed down to the image of gold. Just so long as they added a bit extra onto their own religion. And to us, that's why the culture of pluralism we live in is such a major challenge to our faith. Because it doesn't allow for absolute truth. And it doesn't allow us to acknowledge that there is only one God, and it certainly doesn't allow us to believe what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. That I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Another thing that pluralism doesn't allow us to do, or doesn't like us to do, is to evangelize, to tell people that there is only one way. Now, I, I don't know what your experiences are of sharing your faith with other people, but generally I've found most of my colleagues and friends are very accepting, quite happy that I'm a Christian. I mean, usually think it's very nice and sweet, and I probably eat lots of quiche and wear sandals, but, but that's, they're quite happy with that. Instead, if you do eat quiche or wear sandals, that's okay. There's not a lot in the Bible about against that. They can probably even accept, actually, a lot of friends hearing that Jesus loves them. That's quite a nice thing to hear as well. But when it comes to learning that God demands that he alone is to be loved and worshipped, and that worship of all other idols and the following of all other religions must cease, now that's when the accusations come of us being intolerant, of us being bigots, or the worst accusation of all, us being fundamentalists. There's a lot of pressure in our own lives as well, isn't there, to conform and to bow down to other idols, to idols of materialism, to our job, to our status, or whatever else there might be in your life that's a weakness. And we can become so self-involved in our world that we actually begin to forget how great God is and to reduce him to a less significant place in our lives. So whether we're being forced to submit to other gods by governments, or we're being added, asked to add something to our faith by the pluralistic culture we live in, we need to be ready to identify those challenges that come to God's sovereignty. And so there we have it. The challenge has been laid down. And it's clear from verse 7 of this chapter that the majority of the people, caught up in the ceremony of the occasion, perhaps fearful for their own life, went along with it. That is all except for three individuals who were willing to stand up and who were willing to defend God's sovereignty. Well, let's look at the next part of this passage from verses 8 to 15. I'm going to read it in full before we make some observations about this. Chapter 3, verse 8 to 15. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes. 
and all kind of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and they paid no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Well, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned the three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and they were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of God I have set, gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes of all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then, and here's the biggest taunt of all, what God will be able to rescue you from my hands? Well, there's a couple of things I'd like to notice from this passage. And I want us to notice actually the contrast in reactions between the two groups of people. Note, first of all, what a megalomaniac Nebuchadnezzar had become. And actually how much he's forgotten, since we learned last week in chapter 2, verse 47, where he actually he was humbled and he acknowledged that God was the God of gods. He completely forgotten that. So humiliated did he feel, so angry, that he taunts the men in verse 15 and says, What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? In other words, there is no greater power than me. Not even the idols that I worship could save you from my hands. Well, I want to contrast that arrogance with the humble response of the three men. If you get Ypres, you will have read last week, it was a very helpful observation shared by Will Aminia, about the fact that when Daniel and his companions stood against the king's diktats about their diet in chapter 1, they did it with courage, but also in a respectful and tactful manner. And this seems to be a stance they continue to adopt actually throughout their lives. In fact, the very, when you look at this passage, the very fact that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had to be shocked or had to be told on by the astrologers means it's likely that the first reaction was non-conformity. Quiet non-conformity. They simply didn't turn up to worship the image. But equally, they probably didn't make a huge display of this. It's not until they're brought before the king, however, that they begin to give account for their actions. And again, they display great courage and enormous dignity in the way they conduct themselves before the king. Read in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Essentially what they're saying, they weren't going to argue with the king. The time for words was actually over. Now was the time for action to show that their message of resistance was stronger than any elegant spe eloquent speeches that they could have done. And I think actually it is important sometimes that we do debate, it is important sometimes when we're talking to our friends and we're trying to convince them about the truth of our faith, that we can talk to them and use clever arguments. But actually, a lot of times, there is no need for flowery sermons. Like these three men, we can simply state our case and then hopefully let our deeds speak for ourselves, for themselves, as we live out our lives 
in worship of God. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego stood before the king and then in verse 18 came out one of the most profound statements in the whole book of Daniel. A statement in defense of God saying that he was greater than Nebuchadnezzar and he was greater because he could actually rescue them from his tyranny if God chose to do so. Looking at verse 17 and verse 18 we read If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now you might be surprised to hear me say that I see this part of the text as a bit of a love story. Now, admittedly, most love stories that some of you might read by the likes of Danielle Steele don't include a king about to chuck three men into a hot oven. But it is a love story here. It's a love story of three men who were so captivated by the God they served that they were not willing to do anything that might destroy that relationship. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't refuse to bow down because they hated the king. I mean, to be honest, they were his loyal servants. They served the king. They served the king's administration. They probably even quite liked the king. But they refused to bow down as an expression of their love for God. I mean, in terms of exclusivity, it's not unlike a marriage relationship, is it? I mean, in a marriage, it's right for a husband and a wife to be jealous of each other's love, to be jealous that nobody else should share in that love, but for them just to love one another, no men or women to be added into that relationship. And that's exactly how it is with these three men's relationship with God. They would not bow down to any other deity because God was their God whom they loved. And he loved them with an everlasting love. And it's actually because of this love that we read in verse 18 that they were able to have the faith to know that God would stick by them They weren't meaning to suppose if God would turn up or not. They knew that God would do what he would will. But they knew that God, if he wanted to, was physically able to save them from the king's tyranny. They knew that God was in control. The simple defence of God's sovereignty, the knowledge that he was in control and the love they had for their God. Well, finally, if you look at the last part of this uh, text this morning, I want us to look how, at how God's sovereignty is proved. And we're going to read it again. There isn't a lot of commentary. It speaks for itself much of this, this passage. But I want us to look at verses 19 to 25. Well, in reaction to what Shabbat Meshach and Abednego said, King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with them and his attitude towards them changed, verse 19. He ordered the furnace heated up, such was his anger, seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnaces. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. 
The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire actually killed the soldiers that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. There's a nice little few pieces of detail there, I think, by the, by the, by the writer, just to show us how real the threat was. This just wasn't any furnace. This was a super hot furnace. Then, verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisor, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, Certainly, O king. Then he said, Look, I now see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth of these looks like a son of the gods. Well, this is a remarkable story, isn't it? In fact, it's so remarkable that in doing my reading some of the commentaries, some of the commentators actually argue that it might be allegorical. I reject that completely. If we take the Bible to be the word of God, and if we take it to be true in every detail, then we must believe that this actually really did happen. That there was a huge burning furnace, and in fact historical data from the time shows us that such, such furnaces did exist, but also that God intervened in the situation when the fourth men were, when, when the three men were thrown in. A fourth figure does appear, and again the commentators argue who, who this was. I mean, certainly from the king's reaction, he was clearly divine. Some have argued it was an angel, others perhaps an image of the pre-incarnate Christ. Well, the fact is, we don't really know who the fourth figure was, and nor is it that important. What is important is what this miracle signifies. It signifies that God had won. God had proved that he would keep his promises, that when his people are suffering through the hands of tribulation, that he would appear there alongside them. You see, actually what God does here is not deliver them straight out of the fire, though we do see that they emerge unscathed eventually. In fact, so much so there's not even a smell of smoke on their bodies. But actually that God delivers them through the fire. I don't know if any of you today are going through any form of trials. It might not be the literal flames of being chucked into a fire. But there might be some other sort of fires in your life. Some sort of emotional burdens, perhaps, that are threatening your faith. Well, the reassurance to us is to remain faithful to God and that He remains faithful to us. That He understands those pains and He has promised that He will come alongside us and stand with us in those tribulations. Whether we're saved from them in this earth, or whether God carries us through into his presence in the next. And that leads me actually to the very final point that I wish to make this morning. And that is the impact that this miracle had on the king, and no doubt many of the other witnesses who were there as well. Read in verses 28 through to uh, 29. King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they should be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way.
It's through this miracle that King Nebuchadnezzar came to realise that God was sovereign and that there was a God of intervention. I mean, the text doesn't tell us that King Nebuchadnezzar became a follower of God at this point, a believer, or to give it a modern-day speaker, Christian. But there was certainly a sense that he acknowledged that God was real and that God was great. I mean, he's so humbled, actually, that he breaks down into a statement of praise of this God who had intervened to save his followers. Now, it's not clear... Sorry, now it is clear that witnessing this miracle played a big part in, in this. But I'm sure a large part of it also had to do with the fact that there was a witness from the three Jews who were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any other God. And it's really important I point this out because whilst it happened in this passage, you just need to read a number of other Bible stories and look at church history to see that God doesn't always rescue his people in such a dramatic fashion. But what God does do, and as he does it here, we know that God will be with us to the end and that he will walk with us through the trials. And as a result, we should be willing to give up everything and anything for him. And perhaps it is that, it is that thing when we testify to God's greatness that our friends will acknowledge that the God we serve is sovereign and that is why we should be willing to give up everything for him. During China's uh, Boxer Rebellion of 1900, some insurgents captured a mission station and they blocked up all the gates except for one, that was the front gate. And in front of the front gate, they laid down a cross flat on the ground. The word was then passed to all those who were inside that Anyone who came out and trampled on the cross underfoot will be permitted their freedom and their life. But anyone who refused to do so would be shot. Well, terribly frightened that the first seven students came out, they trampled on their cross and they were allowed to go free. But then an eighth student came out, she was a young girl, and she refused to commit such an act. Instead, she knelt beside the cross in quiet prayer. Then she arose and moved carefully around the cross and went to face the firing squad. And strengthened by her example, by her willingness to not compromise, by her willingness to give everything to God, every one of the remaining 92 students who were in that compound followed her outwards and went and faced the firing squad too. And that's what the challenge is for us today. We need to, on an individual basis, be able to recognise what challenges there are to God's sovereignty and what challenges come that might misplace God's number one place in our lives. We need to be ready to make a stand when the uniqueness of Christ is challenged or when we're persecuted for our faith, no matter how insignificant you might think it is, or whether in the future we might face some severe persecutions. One thing that we can be reassured of, one thing that we have the knowledge of, is that if we remain close to God, we can trust that He is in control, and that He will help us through the trials, even if that means being taken through those trials and taken home to be with Him. 
and it's by others observing our love for our God and witnessing God working in our lives and God working the lives of those who are suffering which we hope will affirm the title series or title of this sermon series which is that our God does indeed reign.